hello to all of my old friends, my new friends, my not yet friends, and then again, maybe we're not friends. I'm Crystal Clear, the host of More Morgan Lines. You're listening to More Morgan Lines. Guess what? I got COVID this week. Yeah. Omicron, Omicron, all the crons. About maybe two weeks ago, I guess, I went through this phase where every night, late in, when it got later at night, I would start sneezing. And you know that type of sneezing that's like machine gun fire? It's just like, how about you? How about you? How about you? How about you? Yeah, that's what I was doing. And I was like, this is really weird because, you know, I just associate this with a viral infection and I'm COVID proof. That's strange. And then Black Friday came and they were like, don't forget about the Black Plague. There's a new chapter. And then China was like, it's actually White Plague. Um, But yeah, I didn't think much about it, even though I was feeling kind of under the weather, but nothing, I mean, I'm tough as nails and unstoppable. Hello, I'm a morgie. Uh, But yeah, Monday, right after I signed the legal papers at the real estate office with the lawyer and my realtor to sell Freedom House, and I made a bunch of money, y'all. Feeling so good about that. Uh, I came home and started feeling not so good about just the way I was feeling and um, what ensued from Monday until today, really, um, was three of the sickest dog day afternoons. Actually, I felt kind of like just normal sick in the afternoons, but early morning, late night, uh, it was horrible. But I mean, I felt all day sick for at least two days in a row. For someone like me, who's, have you seen um, the Terminator movies? You know that one character that's like, I'm the governor of California. That's, well, I'm back. Hey, we're going to have a great episode today. Um, guess what? Ivermectin doesn't work for Morgulons, but it might work for COVID? I don't know. Let's look into that more. I know we've talked about it before, but I have to say, just anecdotally, this is not in any way meant to be construed as medical advice. Don't sue me here. I'm speaking to you as crystal clear. You have been warned. Just saying, anecdotally, took some uh, dewormer, degermer. I was connecting with the mectin. Not instantly, but within a few hours by that evening, the time when I had historically been getting worse, starting to feel better. When I woke up this morning, I feel almost normal. Very interesting. Maybe I would have gotten better in this exact same time span had I not taken it. But either placebo is a hell of a drug or there's hope, don't mope. And don't elope, stay tuned. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I want to share with you guys an article written by a guy named James Heathers, published two months ago today on October 23rd. 
It was in the Atlantic. Great journal, by the way. Please don't sue me, Atlantic. I'm about to subscribe to you because you're awesome. All the things I look up, I'm like, ooh, an Atlantic article. But yeah, so this is a really interesting article that the Atlantic published a couple months ago. The real scandal about ivermectin. Claims about the drug are based on shoddy science, but that science is entirely unremarkable in its shoddiness. James Heathers, that's the author's name. Ivermectin is an antiparasitic drug and a very good one. If you are infected with the roundworms that cause river blindness or the parasitic mites that cause scabies, it is wonderfully effective. Just don't get your hopes up for morgulons. It is cheap, it is accessible, and its discoverers won the Nobel Prize in 2015. It has also been widely promoted as a coronavirus prophylactic and treatment. And remember, a prophylactic is just a preventative. Back in the old days, they used to call condoms prophylactics. Um, I don't know if anybody did. I just remember hearing it when I was a kid. Um, so anyway, it's been widely promoted. And this promotion has been broadly criticized as a fever dream conceived in the mimetic bowels of the internet and as a convenient buttress for bad arguments against vaccination. This is not entirely fair. Perhaps 70 to 100 studies have been conducted on the use of ivermectin for treating or preventing COVID-19. Several dozen of them support the hypothesis that the drug is a plague mitigant. Two meta-analyses, which looked at data aggregated across subsets of these studies, concluded that the drug has value in the fight against the pandemic. Man, he's using some big, fancy words. Something that mitigates is a mitigant, so something that prevents. Just checking in, y'all. This might be annoying, but there's some people that probably are like, what the fuck? Um, so, and the average American reads on an eighth grade level, okay? There's no shame in it. I'm just trying to make this more accessible. Um, so if you're the sort of person who, quote, follows the science, it might seem perfectly rational to join the fervent supporters of ivermectin. It might even strike you as reasonable to suggest, as one physician and congressional witness did recently, that, quote, people are dying because they don't know about this medicine. Oh, the morgies know about it. Trust me, doc. The problem is not all science is worth following. I work on a small team of researchers who do what one might call, quote, forensic peer review. In the standard process for scientific publishing, peer reviewers take a manuscript mostly at face value. They ensure that the study makes sense as it's described. We do something else. We check everything and try to ferret out any potential biases on reported patterns of digits, statistical impossibilities, inconsistencies between what researchers said they do and what they actually did, and plagiarized sentences or paragraphs. And we often find fatal flaws hidden behind a veil of $2 words and statistical jargon. Well, ain't that the pot calling the kettle black? Um, but no, that's this is what we have done Y'all, if you go back and listen to me rip to shreds the CDC study at all, that's that's what these uh, volunteers are doing. So anyway, the ivermectin literature has been no exception. Over the past six months, we've examined about 30 studies of the drug's use for treating or preventing COVID-19, focusing on randomized studies or non-randomized ones that have been influential with at least 100 participants. We've reached out directly to the authors of these studies to discuss our findings, sometimes engaging in lengthy back and forths. When appropriate, we've sent messages to the journals in which studies have been published. In our opinion, a bare minimum of five ivermectin papers are either misconceived, inaccurate, or otherwise based on studies that cannot exist as described. One study has already been withdrawn on the basis of our work. The other four very much should be. Damn, burn. 
Um, I like this dude. What's up, Heathers? You are cool. Um, in the withdrawn study, a team in Egypt compared outcomes among COVID-19 patients who did and did not receive ivermectin. But for the latter group, they included, for those, they included deaths that occurred before the study began. Y'all, Research 101, you got to define your study time and you got to define your study population. According to the journal Nature, the lead author, quote, defended the paper in an email and claimed that the withdrawal took place without his knowledge. He did not respond to an inquiry from the Atlantic. Dude, you caught red handed, bro. Put some gloves on and go back in the closet. Other papers also have egregious flaws. Researchers in Argentina said they recruited participants from hospitals that had no record of having participated in the research and then blamed the mistakes on a statistician who claimed never to have been consulted. Yeah, I would call those pretty egregious. A few studies show clear evidence of severe data irregularities and one from Lebanon, for example, the same section of patient records repeats over and over again in the data set as if it had been copied and pasted. An author on that paper conceded that the data were flawed and claimed to have requested a retraction. I mean, will they just publish anything in these journals, you guys? Take with a grain of salt anything you read in research journals, especially about morgue loans. All of the above may not sound that bad. If five out of 30 trials have serious problems, perhaps that means the other 25 are up to snuff. That's 83%. You might be tempted to think of these papers as being like cheaply made light bulbs. Once we've discarded the duds with broken filaments, we can just use the good ones. What he's getting at is that's not how any of this works. We can locate obvious errors in a research paper only by reanalyzing the numbers on which the paper is based. So it's likely that we've missed some other more abstract problems. Also, we have only so much time in the day and forensic peer review can take weeks or months per paper. Okay, blah, 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 blah. He's like, I'm smarter than everyone. Duh. Um, more problematic, the studies we are certain are unreliable happen to be the same ones that show ivermectin as most effective. In general, we found that many of the inconclusive trials appear to have been adequately conducted. Those of reasonable size with spectacular results implying the miraculous effects that have garnered so much public attention and digital notoriety have not. So basically, they are saying that they really dug deep, forensically deep, into these uh, scientific papers that have been published over the past two years, going on three, of this pandemic about the effects of ivermectin on COVID-19 viruses. Um, and the results are kind of inconclusive. If you only look at the studies that are kind of adequately conducted, validly constructed studies, we think. So, yeah, like, I... <laughs> This is not just an extended fine print, do, do not sue me statement. I mean, it's kind of really touching on something that I've remarked upon many times on this show. And that is that you do have to follow the research, but you also have to understand that the research is often flawed. You know, sometimes it's absolutely falsified. They found in their uh, work as forensic peer reviewers of scientific papers that maybe up to 25% of these folks in the white coats are fudging the numbers and falsifying data. And my suspicion is that probably a good number of those are doing it because they're not even smart enough to understand what they're studying. And they're just making it up as they go along. You see, I'm a manager of people and <laughs> unethical, dishonest, and malicious sounds like about 7.5% of the population. And 
lazy and dim-witted. It's probably like 37.5%, maybe. Maybe 37%-ish. So scientists are part of the population. Just kind of, you know, the experts are not experts if their data sucks. Um, you know, the people that are known, like the Anthony Fauci's of the world, he did not, you know, find his expertise on this subject matter by running a penis enhancement clinic in California and then um, a Lyme, a chronic Lyme disease clinic that charges $900 a visit. Um, that's not the expertise he brought to infectious disease. He was the director of the National Institutes of Health for the infectious disease. But even the person who graduates from an Ivy League institution, number one at the head of his class in his field and who continues to be a thought leader in his field, I still don't think that means he's ever had an original thought, y'all. I think Fauci's a really intelligent, soundly rational thinking guy, but uh, he has no fucking imagination or he knows about the China virus. Um, I'm sure he's heard that before, but I don't think he buys it, but I'm wondering for how much longer we will be having this conversation as though this is not created in a lab. Let me just break right here and tell you guys about the Omicron if you haven't gotten it yet. And if you're in America, you probably have. You probably got it right now. Um, or you will tomorrow. Uh, but yeah, it sucked, you guys. Weird, weird pains in my hands, my legs, my back, my neck, my shoulders. Uh, dry cough that turned wet. Uh, not very productive though. And no fever, no loss of smell, taste. Oh yeah, also GI blues. I had the GI blues. You know what I'm talking about, y'all. The rest room, I didn't get much rest. Um, but TMI, moving on, just to close it out here about the bullshit in the ivory tower and how does it relate to ivermectin? Well, I think what we so far have heard is that, um, it's anybody's guess, but it seems like it's pretty inconclusive. There's nothing too compelling that's been published yet. Of course, maybe it's different with the new variant. Nobody knows. Welcome to the new world order. Of disorder. So they go on to say um, that in this environment, no sinister conspiracy is needed to allow for the construction of an irreparably flawed body of literature. In fact, the suspect quality of the ivermectin COVID-19 literature may be alarmingly commonplace. Remember, our low estimate is that about 17% of the major ivermectin trials are unreliable. John Carlyle famous in meta-scientific circles for identifying the most prolific research fraud in the history of medical research, the case of Yoshitaka Fuji, an anesthesiologist who managed to garner an astonishing 183 retractions, reviewed more than 500 trials submitted to the journal Anesthesia in the three years leading up to the pandemic and concluded that 14% of them contained false data. In a 2012 study of researchers at five academic medical centers in Belgium reported that one person admitted to having fabricated data in the prior three years, though 24% said they had observed a colleague doing so. So 1% of people are admitting to doing it and really like 25% of people are probably doing it. So I think my point here is like, 
nothing makes sense. There are no answers and there never will be. And I hope that leaves you feeling satisfied and safe. Stay tuned.